Hello and welcome to our podcast. This is Hypochondriac's Almanac and I'm really excited to be recording for you guys this morning as per usual. It's just me today. Miss Katrina is finishing up the summer with her children and trying to get in as much fun stuff as she can for them. So I am doing this on my own today, which is very fun for me as well. If you are wondering, this is the podcast for all of you out there who secretly think you have a new disease every time you have a sniffle, a slight twinge, or a headache. It is not a tumor. We understand, we identify, and we have definitely scoped out WebMD more than our fair share of the times. We are here to talk about weird diseases, strange illnesses, crazy syndromes, and rare disorders. But before we get started, we need to talk about a few little disclaimers. First and foremost, we are not doctors or nurses or medical professionals of any kind. Please, please, please do not take anything we say on the show as medical advice. We are not trying to treat, diagnose, or fix any of your medical conditions. If you have an issue, please see a doctor. Don't guess or take what we say as a diagnostic tool. We just want to talk about all the fun and weird parts of the medical world in the past, present, and the future. Let's jump right in. I have got a jam-packed show for you guys today. And I am going to start out with an interesting topic. Is your Tupperware poisoning you? This is an article I found on pronetmarketing.com. And it's interesting because I normally wouldn't um, pull an article from this type of a source, but it brought up a very interesting topic because there is so much Tupperware floating around out there from back in the day. So it's actually posted back in May of this year, but I think it's a very interesting topic nonetheless. Let me just read it to you. It says, Americans have been using plastic containers and lids to store, save, and transport food storage for decades. In 1948, an American plastics company called Tupperware held its first ever Tupperware party. I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember Tupperware and all the fun parties that they used to have. I'm pretty sure it's a lot like network marketing is today with respect to Sensi and Rodin and Fields and all kinds of other different companies that have get-togethers with uh, ladies in their homes to sell and network and so forth. Anyway, since then, millions of bowls, measuring cups, and storage containers bearing the Tupperware label have been sold and used. And I don't know if you guys have any of these in your home, but I distinctly remember a lot of Tupperware when I was growing up. The flour containers, the measuring cups, all the other fun little stuff with the lids included with that very distinctive Tupperware design on them. In any case, other companies have tried to produce similar products, but there's a good chance Some of you still have your Tupperware. They are very durable and they have a coordinating color set for every use you could possibly imagine. So it's really easy to understand why so many people are loving and hanging on to their Tupperware sets. However, there is an article circulating out there on social media about the potential toxicity of Tupperware especially if it's Tupperware from the 70s. I don't think that there is an issue that is at hand at the moment for Tupperware that is recently purchased within the last five years or so, but they're really talking about Tupperware from the 1970s. It is durable as hell, but they're saying that there is some heavy metal toxicity involved with that. In particular, they did some testing on vintage daffodil yellow measuring cups and found lead, arsenic, chromium, zinc, nickel, iron, vanadium, titanium in those products. 
According to researchers, the amount of lead considered toxic in a newly manufactured item is anything higher than 90 parts per million. Well, let me just say, when you're looking at the parts per million, it exceeds that in the daffodil yellow measuring cups that they did measure. And, and they're saying it's not that Tupperware is necessarily intending to poison anyone or had at the time. Metal leach testing was actually not required when Tupperware pieces were manufactured, especially the ones in the 70s. It is now, but it was not at the time that a lot of these vintage products were manufactured and sold to consumers. In addition, wear and deterioration over the course of 40 or more years can play a role in leaching toxins, especially items used in the microwave, freezer, and dishwasher. This sort of brings out greater numbers of the toxins and allows them to come out into the food you're cooking and into the water you're drinking and anything that you're using in those cups. Now, the experts are recommending get rid of your vintage Tupperware. If you're going to keep it, do not use it for food consumption. If you want to keep it because it's, it's a memory that you have or a piece that you got, it's nostalgic for you. Um, by all means, keep it, but don't use it for food. Glass food storage containers are the safest, least toxic choice for heating and storing your food. There is online a complete list of every piece of Tupperware that has been tested to date. I will put a link to that in the show notes. It's not, and I think the researchers and the writers here want to make it very clear that using one or two pieces every once in a while that are leaching lead is not going to kill you. But metal toxicity is about a buildup in your system after years or decades of repeated exposure to these metals and toxins. And this can have the serious consequences to you. So concentrations of metal like mercury, arsenic, cadmium, and lead can cause your body a lot of harm when they start to accumulate over long term. Again, some heavy metal poisoning happens as a result of industrial exposure, but most of the exposure to just normal people on a day-to-day -day basis is a result of air or water pollution and trace amounts of it in our foods and medicines, dental fillings, and metals from cookware, etc. And that includes the food storage containers. If you suspect that you might have heavy metal toxicity, you some of the symptoms include headaches, confusion, fatigue, weakness or tiredness, muscle and joint aches and pains, and digestion issues. If you suspect that you have some of these symptoms and that you have perhaps a little bit of heavy metal toxicity, see your doctor. Um, and they have tests that they can perform to check out what the levels of those items are in your blood and body. If you have been exposed to these particular toxins, there is a safe and natural way for you to help your body get rid of them. Um, and you can go online and check out different methods for that. But the first step would be essentially to see your doctor and find out if you have been exposed to those and if the levels have accumulated in your blood to the point where they are at a toxic level. So it's a very interesting topic, particularly for those of us that grew up with Tupperware I guess long-term, a lot of these products, they just never thought would be on the market for 30 or 40 years and people would still be using them. I guess it speaks to the longevity and the durability of the product, but at the same time, it's like, holy crap, am I gonna get poisoned by using my you know, cooking pan that I, my mother passed down to me, that sort of a thing? Do your research, folks. Find out online, look at what products have been tested, and then if you are concerned about yourself, get yourself tested for heavy metal toxicity to see if maybe that is causing some damage to your body. 
The next topic that I want to talk about on the show today is a very interesting one as well. Some of you may have heard of this one in the past as well, but the article is from intelligentliving.com and essentially the title of the article is Dogs Can Sniff Out Cancer in Blood with a Nearly 97% Accuracy Study Shows. I find this very interesting as well. Uh, Andrea Stefan wrote this article and it actually came out in May. But blood sniffing dogs may become the latest frontier in cancer detection. A new study presented at the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology annual meeting during the 2019 Experimental Biology Conference in Orlando, Florida revealed. Okay, so this article essentially says blood sniffing dogs are supposedly the latest frontier in cancer detection and this is according to some new studies that are out by the american society for biochemistry and molecular biology they are showing some of the results of testing and experimenting that they've done at the 2019 experimental biology conference in orlando florida dogs obviously have a very superb sense of smell so why not tap into that and use it for some other things and now they're starting to say that this could be detecting cancer dogs noses are essentially 10,000 times more accurate than a human's and they are very highly sensitive to odors that humans can't necessarily perceive in all times Trained lab dogs were able to pick out blood samples from cancer patients with a 97% accuracy rate. That is absolutely crazy to me. Do we need any other reasons to consider dogs man's best friend? Because quite frankly, if they can sniff out cancer, what can't they do? So one of the lead researchers from the study says the results from this could lead to canine detection at a much lower cost, non-invasive approach to cancer screening and perhaps for other diseases as well. And then additionally, dogs can also detect cancer in many instances earlier than other traditional exams. That's pretty awesome. So there's some training that goes on for the animals in order to make sure that they are doing the proper things and they're able to detect the cancers in an accurate way, but, but they started with four beagles who were taught to distinguish between healthy blood samples and those from patients with malignant lung cancer. So the team at Biosent DX, the lab where the study was performed, actually tried this test with them and really worked with the beagles to make sure that they were accurately checking the blood samples and detecting the ones with the cancer. One of the beagles refused to cooperate in this particular instance, but the other three dogs were able to identify cancerous samples 96.7% of the time. So with this in mind, there are a lot of studies going on at the moment and future studies planned as well to work more with this. Now they're testing whether dogs can smell cancer in the breath of breast cancer patients. This is really interesting. The company that is behind this launched a breast cancer study in which patients donate samples of their breath for screening by trained cancer sniffing dogs. And then next, they plan to isolate chemical compounds and samples and find out exactly where the odor originates. They are quite confident that dogs will be able to perform well through all the types of smell tests that they are put through. I can absolutely believe it. Dogs are so insanely smart and gifted. It's incredible. These tests could be considered a viable and affordable supplement to more traditional screening, according to the researchers. The tests cost just $50 on their website. The researchers also want to make it clear that, quote, 
It's important to note that these screenings aren't meant to replace a preventative visit to the doctor or diagnostic tests like yearly mammograms. Although there is currently no cure for cancer, early detection offers the best hope of survival. A highly sensitive test for detecting cancer and potential, could potentially save thousands of lives and change the way the disease is treated. Absolutely. And it's absolutely amazing. I can't wait for them to do more research as long as these pups are not being abused or neglected or harmed in any way. I say I'm all for it. Let's get those dogs into the airports. I'm particularly reminded as well of going through the airports in Hawaii where they had a drug and bomb sniffing dog that was sort of weaving its way through the line of people that were standing in the security waiting to get on. And as a result of having that dog there at the airport, we did not have to take our shoes off. We didn't have to unload our bags. And we essentially could walk through the metal detector with all of our clothing on. We did not need to strip down in the way that you normally would at the airport just because the dog was there. So I say if we can get the dogs in there, have them in there working, doing their job because they, they're very highly trained for that, then I'm all for it if it's going to speed our way through the airports and make us feel safe and secure. Okay, so the next topic that we're going to talk about on the show today could be potentially a very controversial one as well. And this particular article is called a 19 month old had thinning bones and no teeth after her parents fed her a vegan diet of fruit, rice, milk, potatoes, and tofu. This article is by Julia Naftulin and it was published in August of 2019. I actually found this on Yahoo, but it has been circulating around the internet as well. Essentially, The summary of it is, in March 2018, two parents in Australia took their 19-month-old daughter to the hospital after she had a seizure. This was reported by the Australian Broadcasting Company on Thursday. Doctors found that the baby was severely malnourished because her parents had fed her a vegan diet of rice milk, tofu, veggies, and fruit. She had no teeth and thinning bones because of her malnourishment, the ABC report said. According to the American Academy of Pediatrics, children should eat food from all five food groups, including dairy, meat, nuts, seeds, and eggs. This is interesting. So evidently, way back in March of last year, these parents took their daughter to the hospital after she had a seizure. Now, I wonder if they suspected that her malnourishment and diet might be a result, may have caused this seizure. But the doctors, instead of confirming that maybe the daughter had epilepsy or some other sort of condition, confirmed that the child had rickets, a condition in which children's bones are softer and weaker because they are deficient in vitamin D. This is according to the Mayo Clinic. Rickets is not a common disease that people experience today because most people do not have difficulties finding vitamin D in their diet. However, these parents in December of 2018 pleaded guilty to causing danger or serious injury to their baby, acknowledging that they fed their daughter a vegan diet that included tofu, rice milk, vegetables, fruit, and oats. Doctors in this instance said the girl's bones didn't develop properly because of her nutrient deficiencies. A foster care provider who met the 19-month-old said she looked three months old because of her condition and had no teeth which is absolutely insane because a 19-month-old should at least be busting some teeth into the mouth at that point. 
This particular child is now being watched by other family members and her parents have supervised visits with her. Raising a vegan child doesn't always lead to such severe consequences, researchers and vegans are claiming, but this toddler's story illustrates how dangerous a restrictive diet can be for a developing child. And this is a very controversial topic because many people are claiming that they do not want the government, health agencies, etc. in their homes telling them how to discipline, raise, feed, take care of their children. But in instances like this where it is clearly detrimental to the child's health, then there is reason for people to report the dangers that could potentially be happening to this little child, this poor child who has no say over whether it's still hungry, what kinds of foods it can have, and whether it's happy, healthy, and safe. As we start to see the vegan sort of lifestyle expanding, researchers and doctors are now seeing kids who aren't growing properly with when parents limit certain things in their diet. And this is according to Dr. Tanya Altman, a pediatrician and executive board member at the American Academy of Pediatrics. There are very, very important and specific recommendations about what to feed babies. However, it is becoming increasingly common in some vegan families to have the need to intervene because the child is not getting the proper nutrients. This is not necessarily something that needs to happen. You can work with a pediatrician or a registered dietitian or just do your research properly online to find out what you're going to need to keep your child properly fed and to get them the proper amount of nutrients. And this also involves going to the doctor for regular checkups to make sure your baby is developing properly. While it is possible to raise a child, a healthy child, on a vegan diet, it's certainly more difficult than raising a child who can eat from every food group, the experts say. Children typically get calcium and vitamin D from animal products like milk and eggs to help their bones grow strong. But vegan diets don't allow these foods, which can make things a bit more difficult. A glass of cow's milk has 8 to 10 grams of protein per serving, but alternatives like almond milk contain only 1 gram of protein. The lack of nutrients means parents have to be extra cognizant of feeding their children protein from other plant-based sources like nuts, seeds, and lentils. So they're essentially saying that it's not impossible to get your child the proper nutrients on a vegan diet, but you're going to need to substitute heavily from other food groups to ensure that you're not depriving that child of the particular things that they need to be able to grow into a healthy young child. So according to the researchers, a whole food vegan diet could be started for a child as early as six months, but it should include plenty of protein from plant-based sources. Before then, the baby should be breastfed or given a soy milk formula. Still, research has found that kids between the ages of two and six who drink milk from cows and eat eggs as part of their diets have better growth rates than kids who skip out on these foods. If parents aren't tracking what their child is eating to ensure they get proper nutrients while vegan, or if they skip out on developmental check-ins with their pediatrician, it could result in malnourishment and health problems. Because of the risks associated with eliminating food groups during such a key developmental period in a kid's life, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends kids eat food from all five main food groups. This includes meat, fish, eggs, and dairy all products that vegans do not eat. 
So this story is basically telling us it's okay to be vegan. You can still get the proper nutrients from a vegan diet, but you need to be careful. You need to be seeing a doctor regularly to ensure that you're not skipping out on the essential nutrients that you need to develop your baby properly. And you need to make sure that you're using common sense. If you're looking at the child's hair, skin, or teeth, and things are looking strange, funny, underdeveloped, they're not growing teeth, their hair is thinning, that to me clearly states that there is a problem. And if you are an adult in charge and you're not noticing those things on your child, then you are being negligent as a parent. I am not trying to be judgmental to anyone by any means because I do not have any children of my own, but these sort of things seem like common sense. It also seems like common sense to allow your child the widest variety of foods as a small child and then let them pick out when they get old enough to be able to understand whether they want to be a vegan or a vegetarian or a pescatarian or whatever else there may be as an option at that time. Rather than forcing your own personal decisions as an adult on a child who's not necessarily old enough to understand, comprehend, or is not healthy enough to be able to get the nutrients they need on their own or speak up if they don't feel good from the diet that they are consuming. So very, very interesting topic. There are a lot of people that are very up in arms about this, and I know that vegan listeners may speak to this as well. And there are many, many vegans out there who have a perfectly healthy diet and who are not malnourished and who are doing everything that they can to live a very healthy lifestyle. And maybe perhaps being a vegan is a very conscientious choice for them because they don't feel that harming, eating, raising animals, chickens, eggs, things of that nature is morally right in their eyes and they just don't want to do it and that's fine by no means am I telling any of those people that they are wrong in their decisions but when you've got a developing small child you have to take other considerations at into play here so obviously this is a very interesting topic and I may get some hate mail because of it but in any case Very, very interesting. The next article that I'm going to discuss on the show today has to do with vaping. And there are a lot of people that feel like vaping is an alternative to smoking cigarettes. It's a healthier option. It's something that's not going to get you the lung cancer in the same way that a cigarette would. And this might be true, but there are now a lot of studies coming out that suggest that vaping may not be such a safe alternative. This particular article I found on the cbsnews.com website, and it's titled, Health Officials Investigate Nearly 200 Lung Disease Cases Among Vapors. Federal health officials are investigating nearly 200 cases of severe lung illnesses among vapors. Concerns over the health risks associated with vaping only grew when an adult in Illinois who recently used e-cigarettes died from an unexplained pulmonary illness. That adult's death is one of 22 cases recently reported in Illinois. Most of these involve men between the ages of 17 and 38, which is very, very young. Some of the men admitted to using THC, an ingredient in marijuana, while vaping. Now, public health officials are investigating 193 possible cases of severe lung illness associated with vaping in 22 states. All of these cases have been been reported since June 28th, which is all very recent as well. Doctors are now saying that they're seeing a pattern of lung injury that have not seen before, and they're 
concern because 15 confirmed or suspected cases have recently come out showing very abnormal chest x-rays that look like it is going throughout the entire lung. It is still not clear which products or substances these individuals have used. Chance Amarita, 18, of Florida, wound up in the emergency room after using e-cigarettes. His doctor believes his vaping may have contributed to a lung injury. It felt like I was having a heart attack, he said, describing the feeling he experienced when his medical emergency began about three weeks ago. I would say my chest felt like it was collapsing and tightening up so much that I could not breathe, he said. Emergency room doctors told this young man that his right lung had collapsed and had a hole in it. He, of course, freaked out at that point because having a freaking lung collapse has got to be extremely painful. He went into surgery right away. The American Vaping Association said that it's THC or illegal drugs are to blame for the acute lung injuries, but health authorities say they're still searching for a common thread that ties these cases together. And I think this is particularly disturbing because there are so many people out there that really believe, think, and advocate for vaping because they feel like it's so much of a safer option. But in many instances, you don't have the same sorts of filters that you have in regular cigarettes. So not only are we seeing like a rapid and dramatic increase in these folks showing up in emergency rooms with e-vaping or e-cigarette vaping type issues, there are now people that are suggesting that vaping really is no better than smoking. And I found an article about this on heart.org. The increase in e-cigarettes use, particularly among young people, is a dangerous trend, they're saying, with real health risks. For many reasons, e-cigarettes should not be promoted as a safe alternative to smoking, they say. While fewer people are smoking or starting to smoke than ever before, many people are using other forms of tobacco. But this is actually resulting in an increase in vaping by kids and young people in recent years, so much so that it has become a serious public health threat. Using e-cigarettes is sometimes called vaping or juuling. The battery-operated devices can look like conventional cigarettes, pens, or even sleek tech gadgets. Users inhale and exhale an, an aerosol-type substance in a vapor form. This way of taking in nicotine sometimes referred, is sometimes referred to as electronic nicotine delivery systems and is actually thought to pose a threat and health risk to both users and non-users alike. So it's really not as safe as they want us to believe it is. There are many, many downsides to vaping and few potential upsides. E-cigarettes promote, e-cigarette promoters claim that their devices help people quit smoking, but there is much more evidence out there showing that they are not really that effective for helping to quit cigarette smoking or other tobacco use. Instead, these trends are suggesting that users are more likely to continue smoking along with vaping. This is kind of referred to as dual use. But here, many people think vaping is less harmful than smoking. While it's true that e-cigarettes don't include all the contaminants in tobacco smoke. Vaping still is not safe, researchers want us to know. Here are a few of the reasons why vaping is not as great an alternative as people think it is. 
Most e-cigarettes deliver nicotine, which is highly addictive and may cause negative health effects, such as harming the development of brains in teens and kids and fetuses in women who vape while pregnant. Some types expose users to even more nicotine than traditional cigarettes. So the levels are much higher in many of these vaping type situations of the dangerous chemicals that you would typically get in a cigarette. Not to mention the fact that when you're getting cigarettes, it's a pretty uniform dose across the board when it comes to cigarette packets, cigarette cartons. But the vaping sort of a situation seems as though you can sort of mix and match and put as much into the vapor or as little as you want. So you're getting wildly varying amounts of different chemicals in the vape situation. Not to mention the fact that it's not as clearly regulated as cigarettes are. E-cig vapor also includes potentially harmful substances like nicotine, diacetyl, and cancer-causing chemicals, as well as volatile organic compounds and heavy metals like nickel, tin, and lead. And because vapor is exhaled, those nearby are also exposed to these contaminants. The liquid used in e-cigs can also be dangerous, even apart from its intended use. Children and adults have been poisoned by swallowing, breathing, or absorbing this liquid through their skin and eyes. E-cigarettes' biggest threat to public health may be this. The increasing popularity of vaping may renormalize smoking, which has declined for years. Reversing the hard-won gains in the global effort to curb smoking would be catastrophic. And smoking is still the leading preventable cause of death, and it is responsible for about 480,000 American lives lost each year. Additionally, tobacco companies want to hook a new generation on nicotine and the allure of smoking, and it seems as though e-cigarettes and vaping are really doing this for them. In 2014 alone, Cigarette companies spent about $125 million in aggressive marketing targeting teens between the ages of 12 and 17, and more than 80% of young adults ages 8 to 21 were exposed to magazine ads for e-cigs and vaping. Vaping is now the most common form of tobacco use by kids and teens. In 2018, vaping by high school students in the U.S. doubled from the previous years. So clearly this is becoming a huge, huge issue. Many students say they've tried e-cigarettes in part because the flavors in the liquids. And maybe you guys have heard the commercials on TV that sort of play to this and talk about this issue with rainbow tears and mermaid stuff and rainbow unicorn this and lucky charms this and they really work very hard to target these young people by using flavors that they think might be appealing like Krispy Kreme donuts like cotton candy which is very very scary in 2016, the Surgeon General called e-cigarette use among young people a public health concern. The American Heart Association shares that view as well. That is why they strongly advocate for regulations that would increase e-cigarette taxes to influence youth purchasing decisions, ban characterizing flavors other than tobacco or menthol, and include e-cigarettes in smoke-free laws that prohibit the sale and marketing of tobacco to minors. 
very, very interesting. Evidently, many of these e-cig brands are coming out in a wide variety of flavors that are appealing to younger and younger users. And the price point is such that they can use their allowance or their lunch money or whatever to purchase these items and are not limited in that. The American Heart Association supports maintaining the Food and Drug Administration's regulatory authority over e-cigarettes along with other tobacco products. The long-term health effects of e-cigarettes are not well understood at this point, but the science currently suggests that vaping is not safe or a healthy alternative to smoking conventional cigarettes. As always, keep looking for that research out there. There are a lot of people that are making a ton of money off this trend, and it's really important for those of us out here who are exposed to this or who may have friends and family that are considering this as an alternative to smoking to realize that it is not healthier. It's not better for your teeth. It's not better for your skin. It smells better than a traditional cigarette, but there are a lot of health risks that are still present with vaping that are also something that you would be exposed to smoking a cigarette. We will keep you guys posted when we hear more research on that. But if you are vaping or smoking cigarettes, either one of those things, please, please, please consider quitting, cutting back, cold turkey, anything you need to do to get that an unhealthy part of your life out is very, very, very smart thing to do today, tomorrow, as soon as you can. This is the point in the show where we are going to say so long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our little podcast. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please shoot us an email. We love, love, love getting email from listeners with suggestions, comments, show topic recommendations, any one of those we would love to get from you guys. We are at hypoalmapodcast at gmail.com or hypochondriacsalmanac at gmail.com. We will put that as well as the sources for the show today into the show notes for the show. Please feel free to check us out as well on Instagram or Twitter. We're at podcast.addict. We love hearing from you guys. Please support us. Check out our posts and interact with us on there. We love talking with you guys. We had a couple of listeners who connected with us over Instagram and asked us to cover off on a few different show topics that they were interested in hearing a little bit more information about. And we also love doing that. Please join us again next week when we talk more about strange medical news, conditions, and treatments. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay healthy, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye.